Hi everyone! Before we start with this episode, we have a pretty big announcement to make. We're having our very first live show. Yes! It's going to be our season one recap episode, which we'll record with you on Zoom. We'll entertain you with our usual banter, and of course, we'll open the floor for you if you have any questions. We'll be hosting this on Saturday, April 17th at 3 p.m. Eastern. For all the details, you can head to the link in the episode description or in the bio of any of our social media accounts. You'll be able to register for the show. There's no event fee for this, but we are going to provide a PayPal link for a pay which you can if you're able to. It'll just help us get some more equipment and keep the show running smoothly and sounding better. Spots are limited, so don't wait too long. Head over to the link in our episode description or on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok at CarryingWayward and register now. We hope to see you there. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 1, Episode 18, Something Wicked. And this week, we have the pleasure of having our guest social worker, Carol Ferry, back with us. Let's get this show on the road. Before we get started with the episode, we do want to offer a content warning for our listeners. Because of the nature of the episode, we will be discussing trauma in various ways. Childhood trauma, intergenerational trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, trauma responses, and indigenous genocide. If any of these are topics you're not feeling comfortable with right now, or at all, you might want to come back to this episode a little later, or skip it entirely. We understand. Take care of yourselves. Welcome back to another episode, Carol. It was so much fun having you. We just had to have you back. I'm so glad to be back. I will promise your audience many more F-bombs and swearing because that's what I'm <laughs> aiming to be known for on your show. The guest that makes the regular team swear. <laughs> so for those who may not know, Carol was with us for one of our most popular episodes so far, Route 666. Can I mix up the pronouns a bit? Are you okay with it? Oh, yeah. They're a registered social worker, counselor, and a longtime Supernatural fan. So welcome back, Carol. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And actually, thank you for uh, mixing up the pronouns. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. Drew, are you ready to get us started with a recap? Weirdly, I'm nervous for this episode, and I don't know why, but yeah, I'm ready. Three minutes? Yes, I probably won't need it all, but let's see where I go. I'll count you down. Three, two, one, go. We open on a father putting his little girl to bed and she's afraid of something and worried about her sister who's in the hospital and then creepy bony hand shows up in window opens up comes in and drinks life out of girl uh clearly something's going on in this town cut to the boys on their way to this town because dad sent them a set of coordinates and sam's all like there's nothing here i searched there's like no reason and dean's like well he wouldn't send us for no reason and it turns out it's to deal with something that john couldn't deal with before so the boys got to clean up his mess This seems like a thing that'll happen a lot, I'm guessing. We get into the town, find out all the kids have suddenly come down with some weird sickness that seems to be going through kids in, like, family by family, which is really weird. Sam continues to do research, and every time he finds something, Dean goes, I already knew that because Dean knew everything and doesn't want to tell him. We then get a bunch of flashbacks to when they were in a similar situation and the same creature was hunting. John was after it, and Dean was left to be the adult in the situation with Sam and Dean as kids. We eventually figure out that the Striga 
is actually the doctor in this town because the one bit of research Sam does that Dean didn't already know apparently was that it was the doctor from years ago. They decide to use a young kid as bait, which everyone's really not okay with, but it's the only way to do it, so they have to do it anyways. And they do eventually kill the Striga, even though it almost gets Sam, just like it did back when they were kids. Time? One minute and 32 left. So I'm going to say that you did really well. (laughs) So let's discuss the things I clearly missed. I will highlight just a couple of things as part of the long game. Yes, please. So the very first thing is that this is the second time that we get a joke about Sam and Dean being a couple, and the first one was in Bugs. Also, the very first flashbacks uh, that we see to the boys' childhood. We've Everything that we've been told so far about their childhood has quite literally been told to us from their standpoint. Mm -hmm. But this is the first time that we're actually seeing them as little kids. And I'll mention two little things that Again, like we know that this wasn't planned, but when you look at the series in its entirety, it's just too loud not to notice. The very first words in this episode are a prayer about a child uh, having angels watching her through the night. So it was really easy for for anybody who knows the series to say that this was going to be a Dean-heavy episode. And then finally, the last thing that I'll mention, and again, not planned, but still absolutely loud when you think about it. It's interesting to note that the boy at the motel who's meant to be a mirror for Dean is named Michael. This, I suppose we can move on to story time because we've got a lot to talk about. (laughs) If we were to start somewhere with story time, especially seeing as we are so lucky to have Carol here with us, I would like to talk about the theme a little bit and what I think is happening in terms of the allegory first thing that I noticed was the nature of what's believed to be the disease, right? They think that it's some sort of pneumonia. The interesting thing about it is that it's working its way through families, one sibling at a time. You know, we so we know that the Shriga takes the children's life force away, much like childhood trauma would. So I think that here we're facing an allegory for intergenerational trauma. I, I really, I'm so excited to hear you talk about this. It's hard to pinpoint how far back intergenerational trauma can go. So it's known as intergenerational or transgenerational trauma, and it's a process by which the trauma of a previous generation impacts that generation and the coping skills and the way they function. The coping skills that they come up may then actually inadvertently traumatize the next generation. And what it is, it's the linkage that that first trauma does something to that first generation that then influences how they interact with the second generation that pulls that trauma through to the second generation. And then that trauma gets dealt with and internalized in that second generation. And then it pulls through to the third generation and forward and forward and forward. In a Canadian context, the most, I think, prominent version or explanation of intergenerational trauma would be looking at the trauma of residential school survivors and what they went through through and I'm not going to use cultural genocide because in my opinion and in the opinion of First Nations folks who have taught me and I've learned from it's just a scapegoat to not actually have to classify it as genocide which has international law consequences but the residential school stripped multiple nations multiple generations of children of their identity It abused them both physically, mentally, and sexually. And when they got out of those schools, they had to cope. And the way they survived that trauma inadvertently was passed on to their kids. And what makes it particularly insidious in Canada is 
that trauma that got passed on and how it impacted them was used as a justification for removing those children from their homes and putting them in predominantly white homes as part of the 60 scoop because their parents were quote unquote unfit. And then those children were abused mentally, physically, sexually in the foster care and adoption process. And then when they had children, that trauma passed on again. And then that trauma was used as justification to monitor First Nations children in Canada and reapprehend them and put them back into the system. Since this is story time, <laughs> going back into kind of the context of how far this goes back, one thing I will bring up for your listeners and for Drew to pay attention to is right now we understand Dean and Sam's trauma as and even John's trauma as linking back to the loss of their mother and their Mary, his wife. And as we go further in the season, we might see that that trauma actually goes even further back prior to Mary dying. I didn't even consider that. We spent so much time just in the taking our notes and prepping and learning about this. And I really just had it in my head as John passing two boys and now the way Dean and Sam are. And if they ever potentially had kids, how they might pass it on, even how they pass on the trauma to Michael almost in this episode as an allegory for their own next generation. It didn't even occur to me to think, what did John have to inherit from his older generation? Or what did Mary inherit? Speaking of that, Sam actually says that John didn't record the incident with the Striga in his journal. And that sort of made me think of parents who are the ones, you know, writing history for their own children. Children are ready to take ownership of their past. And it then made me think of, like, what else didn't John record? How does that relate to how he passed on his his trauma to his kids. I mean, I think if we look back at kind of this whole, we talk about the military background of John and we do explore in this episode, a bit of the parental complex that Dean has in the always needing to be right. And I think to create a, I say this with quote, with air quotes, a Bible of your works in John's diary to omit the things where you messed up or the things where you failed just sort of goes towards making sure you understand that John is always right. Here is a book of all the things I've done. I've always been successful. I've always won. I've always been the best. So when I give you advice, you know you have to listen to me because I'm always right. By putting something in there where that he goes, yeah, but there was the time I screwed up, it causes you to lose faith in him. I, I love this, and I'm going to pick at it later, but the, the two questions I will kind of put in there is for viewers and yourselves to think about is what is the purpose of appearing that you are infallible and never wrong? What purpose does that serve? And then the other thing I'm going to put, put down there is given what we learn about what happened when Sam was attacked by the Striga, did John fail or did John do what we've wanted him to do all the time which is my kids are in danger screw it forget the hunt I'm getting my kids to safety yes exactly I think that this is probably like one of the only times where we truly see John acting the way that we wish a parent would act which is to protect truly protect his children from the supernatural things from from hunger, from abandonment, from all of those things, and take his kids to someone who can take care of them, right? Like it's said pretty clearly that he sends them, uh, you know, they drive and then they end up at Pastor Jim's, right? Like this, this is what 
we wish that John had done all along. Carol, do you want to tell us a little bit actually about the purpose of of appearing always right? Trauma responses. Trauma responses are fundamentally what we do to survive a trauma, which is why I really, in the previous episode that I was on and here, I really am reluctant to ever use the the term um, maladaptive coping mechanisms. And the reason why I I have problems with that, and this is a personal thing, this is not like an across-the-board social worker psychological thing, this is just personal. And I think the reason for me is the way I understand trauma and trauma responses from a trauma-informed practice is those responses serve a very real purpose. They serve the purpose of keeping you safe. So to say they're maladaptive to me undermines the fact that at some point that response kept you safe and alive and healthy and got you across to the next day. John watches his wife burn alive on the ceiling, having no knowledge that supernatural beings exist, and is traumatized both by the loss of his wife, the discovery that there's something more evil out there than wars and bad guys, and now being a single parent to two kids with an unclear, we talked about this before we started recording the episode, where are John's parents and family? We don't know. Where are Mary's parents and family? We don't know. For all we understand, this man went from loving husband and two-parent household to two kids to widow, single-parent family in like 15 minutes in the most traumatic way. The way I understand him is his trauma response is, okay, what, because this is what your brain does when it's traumatized. Something bad has happened. What is the nearest thing to this bad thing that has happened to me? And what did I do in that situation? Because again, brain, very complex organ. In high stress situations, it's looking for the simplest, fastest answer. So what's the last time I have been in a situation where I felt like this? Oh, war. What kept me alive during a war? Following orders, chain of command, rules, regulations, strict adherence to following orders. That kept me alive. I don't know what the supernatural world is. I don't know how it works. I am going to later find out a even more traumatizing reason why my wife died, which means I arguably discover I can't just leave my kid at Pastor Jim's because it's 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 a problem. So what am I going to do? I am going to institute the rules and regulations that kept me alive during the war, which means I am the head chain of command. My kids must listen to me, obey what I say, and I can never be wrong because if I'm wrong or if I admit to being wrong, they might second guess my order and second guessing my order might be the difference between making it out alive or dying. We sometimes forget that getting to make mistakes and be wrong and seek forgiveness can be a privilege. Because in some situations, you don't get to do that because the stakes are too high. Especially in those, in those high stake situations, right? Military. I mean, I, to a certain degree, it feels like the military is um, like a situation that not everybody can relate to, right? So it's hard for somebody who doesn't understand it to truly be able to relate to it, right? I'm, and I'm just thinking, like, again, of something that's an everyday thing. But I have seen once, my, he was two or three at the time, 
my child, go up to touch the inside of the oven. And trust me when I say that there was no discussion. I pushed him out of the way. I've, I've never actually pushed my child apart from that moment, but I pushed him out of the way because it was the only way for me to make sure that he wouldn't actually burn his hand. I guess what you're, something that I'm taking away from, from what you're saying, Carol, is that John did this because to him, every moment was a high stake situation where his kids could be touching the inside of the oven. But the thing is, by doing that, then that's the only way that his kids ever saw him, right? Like my kid sees me way differently. I'm not always pushing him out of the way. For Sam and Dean, they saw their dad as only that person. John is uh, John is to Sam and Dean very functionally, and I think less so to Dean because, again, Dean is actually this is going to segue into the next thing. Dean was young enough that he remembers his mother and he remembers that she died. Sam was an infant. He has no memories of it. So it's also the difference between Dean and Sam's experience with their dad fundamentally comes to the fact that because of Dean remembering his mom, because of Dean understanding that his mom has died and having to process that, there's a bit more information behind the veil. There's the knowledge of, using your example, if your child had ever burned themselves somewhere else and you had afterwards explained like, hey, remember that small burn? This was going to be 10 times worse. That processing to your kid goes, oh, got it understand the rules. It makes sense. But if your kids never had a burn, their first reaction is going to be, what is wrong with you? And parents of small toddlers know this, like that toddler meltdown where they're like, you know, I wouldn't let my child put their hand in the blender <laughs> because they don't have the context that that's going to hurt them. Yeah. They don't, they don't get it. Yeah. Um, same thing. Sam doesn't understand the context of why the rules are all or nothing because he doesn't get the high stakes level mm -hmm. because he doesn't have that memory of how high stakes it was in the past. Mm -hmm. And he learns that as he gets older. And it's interesting too, because at the very beginning of the episode, Dean does say something similar, right? Where he says, because I'm the oldest and I'm always right, you know? So it's, again, something that's being passed mm -hmm. down. It's a Johnism again. Yeah. And that's like, this is the complex thing with trauma and intergenerational trauma and trauma responses, um, which is why listeners, if you have gone through a traumatic events or you're trying to process trauma, I strongly suggest that you look for someone who works from a trauma-informed practice um, because it is complicated and it's, it's not as simple as that hurt. Don't do it again. There's like, there's a whole bunch of stuff to unpack and to work through and it's complex and it influences every aspect of your life. And you're not irreparably damaged and broken and unforgivable and all these other things. And you're probably going to hurt people in your life because of the trauma you've experienced. But trauma is a morally neutral thing. There's no good or bad to how you respond to it because it's fundamentally survival. Again, these are all my opinions based on how I practice, not necessarily how everybody else practices, but that's how I look at it. Uh, it is very easy in hindsight to look at someone and go, why didn't you address that and deal with that and not pass that on? Um, and I will actually give you guys the link after uh, this episode to add in the show notes. But there's a really great TED talk on um, trauma and specifically uh, trauma not transformed is trauma that is transferred. So I guess on that subject, shall we dig a little bit into what exactly was transferred 
from John to the boys, both in this very specific episode and what it means in the larger uh, story context. The ending of this episode feels so bittersweet to me in an entirely too relatable way, where Sam goes, uh, sometimes I wish that I could have had that kind of innocence. And Dean replies, well, if it means anything, sometimes I wish you could too. Obviously, we've got this beautiful quintessential Sam and Dean moment. Sam makes this super heartbreaking statement. And arguably, Sam had a childhood with a lot more innocence than Dean ever did. And yet, instead of seeming resentful or being resentful that Sam doesn't see his sacrifice, Dean agrees with him and doesn't even wish for anything for himself. When I feel that those words that Dean says should be coming from John. It's a very on the nose as we talk about like Dean inheriting so much from John, both the good and the bad, that he even inherits what he wishes John would say to Sam and likely one day John would have said to him to Dean himself because he definitely recognizes that he is the guardian figure in this relationship between the two of them. And if he could go back and change things, he wouldn't go back and save himself. He would go back and save Sam. He would find a way to stop all this. Even if it meant him staying a hunter and having to deal with his life, if it meant Sam didn't have to. Parentification. Parentification, simplest brass tax form, is when a child will take on either um, a, a parenting role towards other children in the absence of one parent or both parents, or even in some cases uh, where they'll take on kind of a weird spousal role, not in a romantic attachment kind of way, but in the way that spouses tend to lean on each other for emotional support, that one child will start to provide that for a parent. Parentification can be the actual acts of being responsible for the care for other siblings or caring for the parent. Um, it can also be emotional, providing like the emotional support and dependence and outlets and development for siblings or another or the other parent. The reason why I have a mm, about parentification is because parentification is very complex. And the situations in which parentification occurs are very complex. The outcomes of parentification are never good for the kid. Like, they're, they're not. Like, these things of like, well, they were more mature, or they learned all these time management skills. The complexity of that is it's very easy to reduce the cause of parentification and the responsibility of parentification onto a parent. And I have problems with this because I, I come from a social work background, so I look, my teaching and how I was taught was to look at more than just, to look at multiple spheres. So why would a parent offload those responsibilities? Why would a parent depend on another child? And our society is fundamentally not designed for mental health supports, single parent households, child support, child services, or child caring of any kind. It's just not. So there is a huge privilege to come from a household in which your family has the money, the resources, the mental health supports, the physical health supports to ensure that children never take on that responsibility. Especially given the context of the pandemic, I am wondering how many parents out there watch their entire lives and economic situation blow up in six months and are now working two to three jobs to try and keep the electricity on. And since they're trying to keep three jobs running, 
now there's an older sibling that's caring for the younger siblings, not because that's not that's a responsibility the parent wanted to offload, but because fundamentally their survival has required it. And that's where I my parentification is a real thing, but parentification needs to be looked at in a whole context. So for example, it's very structural. So for example, we are all very much on the John Winchester A plus parenting holy Toledo Batman. Um, But we're starting to have critical discussions about how did he end up there? What I would say is interesting is the parallel is Michael is Dean's kind of mirror for this episode. And if we look back, Michael's mom is offloading, feeding the younger brother, is offloading, minding the older brother while she takes care of things. At one point, inadvertently offloads taking care of the motel to her child. Those are all very adult responsibilities. But we do not react with such a visceral reaction to her doing those things to Michael that we do to John leaving Dean in charge of feeding his little brother, making sure they stay in the motel and keep the doors locked, and supervising his little brother in the motel. Because there is an implicit social context to Michael's family. They have a home. She's trying to run a business. Um, she's got a kid in the hospital. Uh, she appears to be a single mom. This motel is not screaming, bringing in dollar dollar bills. So we have this kind of background just from the setting and context to her that we can understand how these things happen. We don't actually have that context with John, Dean, and Sam because we only see their lives and snippets and flashbacks and we actually only see the outcome. We only see like the outcome and parentification for Dean and for Sam. And that's where I, that's why I'm like, parentification is a real thing. It has serious consequences, but we can't just reduce it to a parent. We have to, redu- we have to look at the whole social construct and context of why it happens and how it happens. You're right. Because throughout this entire episode, like we, there's clearly that image of like, Oh, look at the way John treats, you know, young Dean and gets mad at him when he tries to be a kid for two seconds. It's clearly not his fault. If this thing was coming in, it would have attacked anyways. Like, you you get so critical of John, and I mean, I think that's understandable, and I, I, I'm not saying you should, we shouldn't be. But then she does the exact same thing to her kid. And you're right. We all sort of, I, I write, I, I always, I clocked the similarities, but I never clocked it as being a negative. I'd also say it, that context also informs how parents react. So when Michael insists on going to the hospital, I want to come. I need to see my brother. I need to make sure my brother's okay. And the mom's just like, no, like, no, you can't. You have to stay here. I can't. And what all of us can see in that scene is it's a mom just being like, I don't know what's wrong with my kid. I am terrified. I am losing it. And I don't want to scare my other kid, but I don't have the time to like sit him down and like walk him through his feelings right now because I can barely walk myself through mine, which makes Dean an A-plus dude for being like, you can't drive right now. Like, let me drive you. Because he has been parentified so often that it's easy for him to anticipate the needs of others also. What's interesting about that scene is if you parallel it to when essentially John comes home to find his youngest child being attacked by a supernatural thing... I went back and rewatched the scene twice. John's first reaction isn't, Dean, what the hell happened? 
John's first reaction is, oh my God, what happened? Like, are you okay? Did it come? Like his first reaction is actually pretty neutral. He's just trying to understand what happened. The anger bubbles up when he finds out that Sam was left alone. And if we come back to parents writing the narrative about children, children, I would argue, also write a narrative about their parents. And it changes over time as we get more context. When we are kids, oh my gosh, there are so many times where I can pinpoint moments with my parents as a child where it's just like, why are you so like ridiculous and controlling and overbearing? And now as an adult, I was like, oh my God, why were you so relaxed? I was a fucking moron. I was trying to climb out of a second story window to hump on, hop onto a garage to go hang out with friends. How did you not murder me? Like the self-restraint you had. Huh. Um, so context changes over time. But if you look at it, Dean reads that moment with his dad as, I screwed up. I let everything down. I went back and rewatched that scene twice. And I read it as, holy shit. What if Dean had been here? Would I have lost both kids? I shouldn't have left them alone. So the reason why it's not in the notebook to me is not a not just a my kids have to have faith that I'm always right for their survival. I also read it as a moment of shame of I screwed up. I shouldn't have left my kids here alone because it could have been twice as bad. No, and that was definitely a reading I got from it as well. I mean, I think you put it into much better words than I could have. But yes, I think in that moment we do see a level of John that really is just all of this is for them as much as it might seem like a cliche thing to like excuse his actions. And I don't want to be what I'm doing here, but ultimately the actions he takes, even the forcing Dean to become that parental role, uh, leaving them alone, though it is definitely has its downsides. He ultimately is doing this all because his end goal is to save the two of them. Would it be time to move on to critical time? So on a personal level, I have to say that I actually appreciated the use of flashbacks because I I usually dislike them. I like non-chronological storytelling, but I get really annoyed with traditional flashbacks. But in this case, I thought that it was a really smart use of, of visual callbacks, right? So if we can do... I'm going to do, I guess, a little bit of self-disclosure here. I actually live with post-traumatic stress disorder. So Carol, when you were talking about how trauma changes you and that it's, you know, morally neutral, um, those are things that I'm personally still trying to work through a lot better than before, but still. So when, you know, I think you can probably explain better what happens in your brain when it deals with a traumatic memory. But I know that for me, sometimes there are things that I really don't expect to trigger or activate my memory of my trauma, and then they do. The brain is an incredibly complex organ, but at the same time that's incredibly complex, it can also inadvertently be stupid. And I say this because uh, your brain does a million processes a day. Like Your brain has to actively think, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. And if you had to actually think through, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, you would be exhausted. Like it just, like you wouldn't function as a person because there's so much brain space being taken up. So your brain comes up with shortcuts, things that it can do automatically without thinking about it, things that run in the background, um, you know, things like that. 
one of the things it does in shortcuts is it pattern matches. It goes, um, hey, this experience, what is it like? What's similar to it? I'm going to react based on the similarities so I don't have to actually cognitively process every single input about this experience and then come up with a new reaction. The simplest version of that is when you're scared, your body kind of defaults to three things, fight, flight, freeze. And the reason why is because it thinks it's in danger. So it goes, do I fight it? Do I run from it? And sometimes I am so panicked, I just freeze. And it's a shortcut. It's a safety thing. Because if you think about it, if you came across a bear and your brain had to go, what is this? How do I think it's going to react? It looks like it has claws. Could those claws be dangerous? Perhaps those claws. Like, nah. No. So what it does is, oh, that looks big and potentially scary and life-threatening. React. Trauma and something like post-traumatic stress, basically what happens is your brain will pattern match similarities to that traumatic event. The simplest example I will give is the origin of post-traumatic stress. So post-traumatic stress used to be called shell shock. And the reason why it's called shell shock was uh, soldiers coming back from World War One would have these panicked responses to things like cars backfiring, to big loud bangs, things that sounded like shell or mortar hitting. And what it was, was that sound would happen And the brain would go, when was the last time we heard this? When I was being shot at during the war. I am in danger. Flood your system with adrenaline. React. What happens in these scenes, which I think is probably what you like about it, Mary, is Dean's in a situation. He's in the exact same situation. He is is hunting the thing that attacked his brother that his dad was previously hunting. So his brain's not in a point of, is this similar? His brain's in a point of like, oh, this is the same thing. Doing the same thing again. So individual moments trigger memories because his brain's already in that space of the stress and the trauma of his brother almost dying and him not being able to save his brother. So things like watching uh, Michael pour milk triggers a memory of when he was in that same situation. But does some really good visual storytelling, like we said, they they are flashbacks that don't seem forced. They don't seem just a matter of convenience. They really do feel natural in the setting. Like we are seeing the flashback as Dean is having it because something triggered it. I I think we all go back to the example of the pouring the milk. But I genuinely, if I'm not mistaken, all of them tend to really tie back to something either said or seen. And I feel like that just helps draw the story together and acts as a really good storytelling element especially when we go back to this whole concept of passing things on, we are literally seeing the past leak into the present. That's beautiful. It is truly remarkable, given what Dean went through the last time with Sam, that being in a situation that is a parallel (laughs) of what happened, he is still able to respond accordingly. He's able to like logically think through things. He's able to react quickly and not overreact. I would ask, though, is he really thinking clearly? Do you think like that it was thinking clearly for him to put to use Michael as bait? Personal opinion? Yes. Processing trauma doesn't necessarily mean you get rid of the imprints of trauma in its entirety. What it means is you move from um, a coping mechanism that is not working for you to a coping mechanism that does work for you. 
is the simplest way. Way more complex, again, Spark Notes. So Dean's coping mechanism to this trauma is to focus on killing the Striga and to do things hyper-logically. To essentially remove emotions from it so emotions don't trigger something else. Is it maybe the healthiest way to deal with it? Hmm, much to be decided. But it is a hyper-logical thing. I I feel like if he wasn't working with some sort of coping mechanism, when Michael was in the room, he would have panicked. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think we all agree that his choice to use Michael as bait was wrong. But I then challenge anybody to then look at the situation in front of them and go, what were the alternatives? Let the thing go, have it kill more children, eventually catch it up again, maybe get lucky and catch it some other way. We know we know for a fact, given what we've seen in the episode and the research Sam has done, the only way to kill it is to kill it while it's feeding. So unless you can force it to feed on someone who's more willing to be bait that is more appropriate of a choice... They're basically painted into a corner where they have to do this and we can almost excuse it because there's no other way, even if we all agree it's not good. Yep. Again, context is key. We're not dealing with a uh, wealth of options. We're dealing with life or death. Like that is, those, those are your choices. Do I, do I do this and save people or do I not do it and people die? That's, that's the whole purview I have. I will say... <laughs> I think also a parallel and to Mary's point of whether or not Dean has good coping mechanisms or whether or not he's he's functioning rationally. A part of me does wonder if asking Michael to be the bait Mm -hmm. is Dean essentially projecting his own belief of what redemption would feel like. So if Michael can save his brother, then Dean can save Sam, then Michael will feel better and Michael will never feel the guilt that I felt. I, to be entirely honest with you, that's always how I read the episode, even before I stopped and really uh, had a deeper think about it. I always felt like Dean was offering his past self redemption in that moment. And he offers that to Michael because he sees himself in Michael, right? Michael is mouthy. Michael is sassy. Mm-hmm. Michael wants to help his mom. Uh, Michael takes care of his little brother. So it, I think it's just normal and natural that Dean would see himself in in that boy. And so having knowing that, it's easier for him to then be like, oh, if I had been put in that situation, I would for sure have said yes. I think the the thing where I see less of... A different trauma response is, again, when the Striga comes in, he's still hyperlogical. He doesn't freeze. He doesn't, like, uh, shut down. He actually becomes, he he's found a coping mechanism, which is being hyperlogical and just focusing on the case as the components require, which, which is a coping process. Like, it, if it works for him, it works for him. Especially knowing how emotional Dean actually is as a character. For him to cut out all of his emotions, I mean, that... That was something to see. I think that this is also where we're seeing the fight in Dean of, am I being hyperlogical? Should I be hyperlogical about this or should I be emotional about this? Like, where do I draw the line and which one black or white am I being? You know, like he's, Dean in this episode is not in shades of gray. Dean is black and white. And I think that that we're seeing that in that moment as well. Supernatural as an entire series, and you can see it through the entire series, does this 
really great thing that it all of its characters get to toe morally ambiguous lines. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they become morally ambiguous is because of the situation they're in. Often as in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, much as in, uh, much as in life. And and that's why like I know I keep harping on this, but I'm like if you have a listener that is going through post-trauma or has had an experience as trauma, this is the one thing I, I hope people take away is when you go through trauma, when you are going through a traumatic experience, or in the Dean Winchester book of life, your entire life is a series of small, continuous traumas. Mm -hmm. The way you react can't be good or bad mm -hmm. because you are just trying to survive and there's no, no moral valuation of survival. Once you get past the surviving, there can be a bit of moral valuation on whether or not you take the steps to address that. And what I mean by that is, and this is where my frustration with Mary Winchester comes out in later seasons, is when you have the knowledge that what you have gone through has caused damage or has the possibility of causing damage, there is a bit of morality in deciding whether or not you're going to recognize that and try and address that, or you're going to recognize that and shove it under the rug. Mm. That's the only point at which some form of morality comes up. And that's because you have the knowledge that what you are doing has an impact on other people, which is why I, when we tie this back to Joan Winchester, I am not sure John realizes that the damage he's causing is because he's traumatized and fucked up. Yeah. I think his inner narrative is I'm just doing the best I can. I will say I believe that changes later in the seasons. Oh. And there is a shift. Interesting. Not necessarily the best one, but there is a shift. Oh. <laughs> I was going to go for it. Honestly, if you're expecting things to get better in Supernatural, stop expecting. It doesn't. No, no, it no, just no. gets worse and worse <laughs> and worse until it doesn't get any better. <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't even know why I expected otherwise. Like, that's such an obvious thing. And there is a crap ton of things that Supernatural gets wrong. Yes, that's true. If any listener wants to go back and listen to the previous episode I was on, that's just like, that's just a, a, a teeny little scratch of the things it gets wrong. But I will say, and I think maybe the reason why a lot of the fan base attaches to Supernatural is because there isn't really a moral judgment of the characters as they try and deal with trauma. Mm. Dean is never portrayed as good or bad for being impacted by the traumatic things he's gone through. Sam is never portrayed as being good or bad for having to work through the trauma he's been through. Even John, to a certain extent, is not portrayed as good or bad. We interpret mm -hmm. him that way, but his written portrayal is not that way. And that's the, I would actually say that's one of the things that Supernatural kind of does right. Maybe not in the healthiest, best way, because at a certain point, I would hope they would encourage people to start dealing with their trauma oh wait they did that with a character with wings but hey um <laughs> sorry um, don't remind me <laughs> but, but that's the thing is is you know trauma whew, it does a number on you and what it does to you doesn't make you good or bad how you react to it doesn't make you good or bad 
the only point good or bad comes into play is once you've been made aware of all of these factors and you've done the work, how you choose to move forward. But at that point, it's not the trauma. It's your choices that are the moral question. Thank you, Carol. Are we ready to move into um, our Crossroads deal for today? I'm going first in case mine comes off as petty because it's a little small in the grand scheme of what is otherwise a really good episode. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm afraid to see what the two of you choose because I'm going to feel really embarrassed if yours are like wonderful. And I'm like, how did I not think of that? But I can't think of many major flaws except for, and I understand why it might've been done, but I really dislike that Sam is basically wasted in this episode. Okay. At least modern day Sam, like present Sam, basically does research like four times and all but one, which is when he discovers that it's the doctor who's doing all this, is him going, well, I found this. And Dean going, yeah, I knew that already. Which I guess, yes, is there to push the narrative of like Dean always being right. But I feel like it's such a waste. I feel like you could have done something with Sam. And I don't know what per se, but I would have just liked to have seen Sam, even though this is a Dean episode, have done something other than be a sounding board and literally a cardboard cutout for an episode. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure what I'm wishing for. I just know I'm wishing for Sam to have been more useful. It may have me. It may have meant less opportunity to show off the Dean being right about stuff. And this could involve Sam maybe doing more research in a different way or getting more involved with uh, what's going on at the hospital, and that's what leads him to look up the doctor mm -hmm. versus just stumbling across a photo. Sam could have been more useful. We could have seen Sam doing more of that humane side of things, which Dean was really not doing this episode, to help kind of build that balance. I don't find this petty at all, Drew. I think this is a really good one because... Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, so, again... The idea of like not using Sam to his full potential is unfortunately something that will come back in later seasons. Running theme. Yes, mm -hmm. 100%. Which is such a shame because Sam is such a wonderful character. And uh, so, yeah, mm -hmm. no, I love your crossroads. Not petty. Definitely accurate. Well, thank you. Carol, would you like to go next? Oh, honestly... <laughs> My my crossroads is actually pretty similar to yours, Drew. So I enjoy that you oh. opened this with petty, and it, it wasn't petty at all. Keeping on the concept of, like, how Dean is processing and we're not processing, there was a part of me that kind of wished Sam had an actually much more active role in taking the Shriga down as opposed to getting, like, pinned by it again. Oh, Sam... Because the thing of it is, to me, this is a memory that Sam doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Like, he can't remember the incident with the Shriga. And if we, I look at the video of him, like, he's maybe five. Mm -hmm. he, like, he, he's not, he's not like three. Yeah. Like, he's five, maybe six. Like, he's, he's past toddlerdom. Mm -hmm. So there's a part of me that's like, well, why doesn't he remember this? Mm -hmm. If he has a memory, what does that memory look like? Yeah. And I would have much more preferred some component of Dean reluctantly working through and sharing the information, getting finding out what Sam's perspective of it would have been, because the whole thing centers around Dean feeling responsible for Sam, and it would have been very interesting as a like character development to have a situation in which Dean actually acknowledges that 
Sam isn't six years old getting attacked by Ostriga anymore. He's a full-grown adult. Yeah, I think... I, honestly, I think the amount we could dissect had Sam been the one to finish off the Striga instead of Dean. Ooh, that could have been a can of worms. Well, it would have been really wonderful because then it doesn't play into Dean being hyper-independent. It doesn't play into Dean mm-hmm. having to get revenge. And it doesn't play into Dean resolving his anger issues with extra anger and rage. It would have been truly like a moment of growth for both the boys, for Sam to take care of Dean and for Dean to allow Sam to take care of him. It also would have been a moment where Dean, because Dean does this a few times, many times, where he kind of co-ops experiences that Sam has also been through as only his experience. Mm. Yeah. He does it a lot. It's very passive and it's not meant in a malicious no. way. But I think the way I read it is there's multiple moments throughout the series where Dean does the equivalent of when you tell someone about something really upsetting or hurtful and the person then tries to, and I've done it too, I've done it a, a lot and I have to actively work against it, but their process of trying to relate in comfort is to tell the, that person a similar experience that they had thinking that it's like, hey, listen, I understand where you're coming from because I've had a similar experience. Mm-hmm. But what it does to the person who told the story initially is decenters their story mm-hmm. and puts it around that other person. Mm-hmm. And I find Dean does that a lot, where Sam's like, you know, my relationship with dad was really hard. And Dean's like, so was mine. So I've been reading lately about um, HD, ADHD symptoms and uh, communication styles and what you're describing, Carol, from my readings seems to be something that's prevalent in people with ADHD, where one way to relate to other people is to tell a story about your own life where you lived a similar experience. And I know that there's a lot of uh, discussion and fandom about Dean as having ADHD. And so I'm wondering if this... M- Anyway, like I just, I'm, I'm seeing all of these things like kind of come together and I just find it really interesting. Almost every mental health diagnosis, all the symptoms, all the diagnostic materials are written around the study and experience of white, especially childhood diagnosis, white children, predominantly white male children. ADHD looks very different in girls. We can discuss the non-binary aspect and the role gender roles plays in that, but it, it looks very differently. It has a hard time getting diagnosed. There's a whole a whole bunch of things. So uh, I'm just saying this as a caveat for any of your listeners. If you think, if you're reading something and it seems to resonate with you and your symptoms kind of seem similar, talk to a therapist or a psychologist. The important thing I would say when you have that conversation is if that psychologist or therapist isn't listening to all the things that you were describing and how you think they relate and how they're presenting for you, and they keep returning to like the diagnostic manual or the ways that it doesn't fit, find someone else. Your therapist, your psychologist, your counselor should be listening to you more than they are talking themselves. Mary, you have your crossroads ready? Yes, I do. I'm going to go in a really different direction, guys. (laughs) Ooh, I'm excited. Yeah, so I've mentioned this line before where Dean asks, you know, how far back does this thing go? And 
in, again, we have, what, 43 minutes per episode. So, of course, you know, it has to be something simple. It has to be one thing. So the origin of the trauma, or in this case, in the allegory, the intergenerational trauma is one person, Dr. Heidecker. But I feel like (laughs) it would have been a much better representation of what they were trying to discuss had it not been one individual, but a system. Now, I understand that this was probably not possible given a 43-minute episode, like I said, but we never see Strigas anymore after this. Like, there is not a single episode with a Striga. And yet, I feel like we could have had others and maybe explore how Strigas work together in order to you know, steal the life forces of many, many children. You know, like, I feel like there could have been a bit more there because I feel like representing intergenerational trauma as the result of one single individual is just misleading. Yeah. I think the other downside, though, is also, again, in just having to draw the creative line between the actual folklore and what is presented on screen. While they took some liberties with the Shriga as a creature and as a bit of folklore they do tend to be very solitary creatures. So it makes sense from a lore perspective that it's solitary. But at that point, I would even go further and say, I agree with your point so much. Had they picked a different supernatural being that they could have done the, it's a species, it's a, you know, it's a, even just go as simple as vampires and it's a whole coven. Like it would have just been easier than to say, oh, let's blame everything on one person and we can focus on a group or an entity or a culture. That's where I actually think what they were trying to focus on in the episode was childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And they inadvertently, because they've written characters that suffer from intergenerational trauma, triggered an episode into intergenerational trauma Mm -hmm. instead of childhood trauma. But I did enjoy the kind of gender bending on witches. Yes, of course. Because Astriga is supposed to be a witch. Yeah but it's a male doctor. Mm-hmm. I kind of really enjoyed um, the gender bending on that. A male in a position of authority as well, right? So I thought that was definitely yeah. very cool. Because <laughs> mm. literally, Astriga is very distinctly in the Albanian lore supposed to be a woman. They are part of the reason we have the image of witches we have today is because of those legends of that old creepy woman in the woods. And it's very much supposed to be feminine. They are very much... Literally, to become a Striga, you are a woman who lost your child or a woman who lost her family. That is how you become a Striga. There's no, oh, if you're a man and this happens to you, you're just, you're fine. But if you're a woman, you know, you could be a Striga. No. So, again, we did our best to fix this episode where we could. And we learned from it and we hopefully encouraged some listeners to question some things or realize some things, whether about themselves, about the episode, or about the show. So I'm going to call this a success. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank Carol Ferry for joining us. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok using at carryingwayward. Don't forget to check out the links in our episode description for more information about trauma and intergenerational trauma. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for weekly content, including special episodes. And until next week, carry on our wayward friends.